the scariest thing about this is that Brandon was right all along. I tell you, even a even a senile Brandon is right once a decade. But what is the Radio Warner podcast and the Gray Zone going to say to to show that Brandon was not right? How how is the what's the spin? Last week it was like the weapons of mass destruction. It was all sure. being made up. I think what they're going to do is say that it was cover for invading Luhansk and Donetsk. Uh-huh. And the whole time they were saying that Putin was going to go to war, they were provoking war by shelling it. They were shelling it. There's real refugees and people are really being used as pawns in it's this eight-year civil war. Sick game. Yeah. So that's true. But what I don't believe is that Brandon is this mastermind Mm -mm. who is like, we're taking those territories and I have a brilliant scheme. (laughs) One bizarre trick. We're going to shell it. And as we're shelling it, say that Putin is going to make a false flag operation. Right. And then he's going to invade. I don't believe that Brandon is that uh, smart. Yeah, that's that's fair. Or anyone he works with. I mean, is, are there masterminds that in he... the U.S. State Department? Uh, I mean, <laughs> they could be the brightest minds in the world, but uh, material conditions have a way of imposing themselves, and political conditions too. And I mean, my take on all of this is that uh, it's it's ultimately every every other like a, a unipolar world is ending. Right. We can all see that. And Mm -hmm. it was the most glaring with Afghanistan when America retreats with its tails between its legs. Putin and other leaders, Xi, have had these uh, have had various like regional geopolitical issues, you know, Taiwan, of course, and Ukraine and Crimea and all that and have been waiting for an opportunity in order to reimpose some sort of geopolitical order, you know, in their interests there. And boy, it's a good fucking time. Like Brandon, you can say a lot of things about Brandon. You could say, let's go, Brandon. You could say Brandon doesn't have all his marbles. You could even say Brandon's a mastermind. But one thing that's true about the whole situation right now is that there are massive, massive uh, chinks in the armor of American power, of of American empire. So I honestly, I was... um, Can we get another word... For what's in the armor. Is that the right word or did I no, say No, it, it's it the is, right word, right. but is there, can we say flaws in the armor? <laughs> I, I said, I said that word and I thought to myself, I was like, was, am I, did I, did I say the wrong word? It, the it didn't armor feel good. is running thin in certain ways. <laughs> sure. Um, <laughs> There's been some abrasion on the outer layer yeah. of the armor. We have a rust spot mm-hmm. or two. Yeah, that's a rust spot in the armor. Um, that old armor, it ain't what she used to be. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I, I think that, uh, Biden and, and company are like, uh, so, so here's one thing is that I, I, from the very beginning, I doubted everything that Blinken and Brandon, everybody was saying, which I think is the rational, like default position when you hear the state department and you hear like unnamed you know, CIA officials inside talking about Russian false flags and the Russians are bringing blood supplies up to the front and, you know, 190 troops, 190,000 troops have entered. Like it's, it's very, in the last 20 years, we've had like tons of different reasons to, uh, to doubt and distrust these particular sources. Um, I guess in this instance, the, the Brandon Gambit 
which was to just like leak raw intelligence, you know, like every single thing they found out to try to get ahead of any like poon hijinks. I guess it was like the right one. I don't know. And it's it's inter- it's an interesting strategy, uh, considering it's like Trotsky at Brest Litovsk. Know- yeah, like famously, uh, like bourgeois diplomacy before that had been gone done behind closed doors, and Trotsky like went and like published all like the internal minutes to the meetings wow. with the imperialist powers, and it really pissed them off because he said proletarians around the world needed to see, you know, the That's depravity the... of the ruling class. <laughs> so basically, similarly, is like that in that tradition, uh, I saw on Twitter today. I don't know how true this is. You know, this all might be fake news of one strain or another but people were saying that the um leader of the communist party of russia you know uh, a very right-wing communist as far as they go very nationalist Mm. very pro-russia he said on sunday that this was going to happen today oh and there's another video circulating probably shouldn't even talk about because i don't know if it's real of like some guy in the the duma saying this was going to happen on today's date in december wow um so you know, this might have been something of an open secret that okay. this was in Putin's plans for this year. And Biden and like the troop movements just made it clear that, you know, they would not have done these troop movements if there wasn't something afoot. Yeah. And it you didn't need a smoking gun or, you know, leaked documents or anything to say uh, Putin's up to something. It looks like he might invade. Uh, but they were like two main things that it could have been it could have been putin invading or it could have been and it could be both of these things actually it could have been putin stationing all those troops there in order to get concessions from the west like what he what he what what they were asking for what the russians were asking for a month ago or whatever was for like a written statement that said ukraine would never be in nato like we don't know whether that was like if he had actually backed off but i was assuming that this was like a bluff by putin then again at the same time it's not like, or at least not yet, God, but by the time this fucking podcast comes out on Wednesday, there might be Russian troops in Krakow for all we know. Mm-hmm. But as of right now, it's not like the the case that they were talking about where it was, uh, you know, Russian troops uh, with kill lists, like driving tanks into Kiev and like murdering like Zelensky and the, and the Western oriented Ukrainians and installing like a, their puppet. You know, it's not there yet. Right. It's just they're They're going into these separatist regions where there's been a civil war for eight years. Yes. But uh, I'm not sure how much you looked at what Putin said today. But I saw he, some of it. He said that uh, he recognized those those territories as uh, independent states um, within Russia or as their own sovereign um, independent. But with the implication that if uh, the forces there invite in the Russian army, Russia will enter. So there's a revenge. Um, but really, the um, <laughs> what really concerns me is the rhetoric that Ukraine is part of Russia, which is a really popular idea in Russia. I've talked mm. to a lot of Russians. I heard Putin who, talking about it today. I saw who believe this uh, 100% that Ukraine's not a real place, that Ukraine is not a real language, that it's Russia. Um, and this is, you know, this is like some pretty ugly, this is like some jingoist imperialist shit. It's, it's and, some 19th century shit. And um, the, the way Putin's been talking about it is pretty interesting because he's got a particularly anti-communist bent to it. Yeah. Where he says that the reason we lost Ukraine was because of Lenin. 
Lenin was too weak on the national right. question, and he like basically created Ukraine out of whole cloth mm-hmm. for like for like Western political reasons because like they understood the nation state in like a European sort of way. When instead Russia, in like I guess a Duganist sort of way, is more like a civilization, right? So like the mistake was even to to federate the USSR at all. Is that is that? Uh, you know, I don't know the historical details or exactly what Putin believes, but I believe it was, uh, was it not Stalin who raised the national question of Ukraine and um, wanted Ukraine to have to have its national identity? And uh, it was Lenin who wanted to make it, uh, who made it a part of the Soviet Union, but uh, like a, a kind of a separate part like Georgia or something. Yeah, uh, uh, SF, uh, uh, a Soviet state within the uh-huh. USSR, its own independent state. So when the USSR falls apart, um, Ukraine, uh, like all the other uh, Eastern Bloc states, like the Caucasian states, um, is able to leave the Russian Federation. And, uh, you know, we saw what happened with uh, Chechnya yeah. uh, when... Uh, when they tried to go their own way, they were pummeled and, you oh know, uh, a put the oligarchs are put right back in charge. Yeah. And so I think this is what uh, Putin wants to do. And, you know, he's not without his his reasons. You know, the NATO is exists most likely in a large part to contain Russia, yes. not yeah. only in in this sense, but economically, like oh, what yeah. what Obama did. To Russia, to Russia. What fucking Clinton did? To uh, how? Yeah. Well, okay. Yeah. So, how? Uh, what America has done to Russia? You know. For, you know, for a uh, hundred plus years, but uh, especially um, since the fall of the Soviet Union, really has given Putin reason to be hostile because the economy is really in the vice of Europe and the United States, and for Ukraine, which democratically elected a. Putin oligarch, mm-hmm. you know, a Russian oligarch, a pro-Russian oligarch, at least, uh, to have that person overthrown and replaced um, with a, a, a pro-Western, you know, pro-NATO figure uh, is, a, is a major affront. And I think Putin is uh, not incorrect to see, you know, the uh, support of these separatist territories, the annexation of Crimea and the possible annexation of Ukraine as somewhat within the logic of that of, of installing like a something of a puppet sure but this gets at the question that i think we're gonna we're gonna have to work through towards in this episode of what happened at maidan mm. the people of ukraine had something like a revolution they replaced one oligarchy with another so if we if we want to think about this not in terms of just like these objective events these moves on this chessboard but what we can do politically like what our position is and what we ought to do about our position um we have to reckon with what happened in maidan uh what happened in syria what's going on right now uh in canada yeah <laughs> you know no, these sure. are these are very related questions portland too what happened in uh portland with uh uh our comrades being uh shot at uh, mur- one was murdered one was I believe, murdered. and but five killed so hopefully we can cover all that stuff um that's a lot to cover but i'm down for it i will warn you that i'm pretty <laughs> hungover today yeah i had one of those uh go out for a couple drinks on a sunday night situation that turned into i was at the uh 
the club until about 2.30 in the morning. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know what? We're going to work our way through it. Or we're going to get through these questions in the most hungover way that we we've got can. the uh, we got our bottle of uh, vodka out and we have <laughs> vodka. We have the glasses <laughs> that don't have uh, you can't set them down. You just have to keep holding them. Sure. I, I, I have to say I didn't feel right today until I had a drink. So thank you. That's good. One of those days, you know, I mean, like there's like the glaring, glaring issue for me, which is that um, we don't want to see a thermonuclear exchange between uh, the two greatest nuclear powers in the world. Um, I would regret that. That would be no good. Certainly here in a big population center, not so great. Right. You think climate change is bad. Imagine, you know, some ICBMs and MIRVs flying over our heads. But some people think that I want that, but if you read my book closely, read the book, the green book. He doesn't I do not, say. I, I do not say that that was one of Pissas's good ideas. <laughs> In fact, you contextualize it very well. I think I say pretty plainly he was wrong <laughs> about nuclear war. I mean, maybe there's some revisionists out there who say you're wrong. They're like originalists on the on the nuclear question. But yeah, like you know the taking a pacifist position on this is a good one. I mean, it's why from the, I'll have a little more from the, from the very get, you know, I was very suspicious of uh, the state department and the U S government and all this leaking that was going out because, um, you know, as much as Russia is being aggressive right now, of course, like the United States has at least in the last 30, 40, 50 years, uh, at least, or probably more of a history of imperial aggression than Russia. I think that there's like the the really shallow, dumb sort of like campist geopolitical position that we've never taken on this podcast, as far as I know, where, you know, Putin becomes an anti-imperialist character that like the, you know, the, 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 the primary contradiction has become American imperialism and the great Satan. And that uh, actually what is happening over there is good because it puts another kink in the armor of the, <laughs> of, the of, uh, of the American empire. I think that's really foolish. And I think that, you know, you, we're going to talk about Maidan and you, I think you know a lot more about this than, than me. I, I, I haven't really followed all that much, but do you remember in, um, uh, was it, it was in Kazakhstan like a month or so ago, there was, uh, like a, a proletarian uprising or at least like a cross class, uh, uprising against the state. Uh, there was like essentially a mini insurrection. And then too, a month or two ago, uh, Putin sent troops in, uh, in the, whatever the security exchange thing they have with all the former states, uh, all by the letter, letter of the law brought in peacekeeping troops as he's doing now in the separatist uh, states of Ukraine, he's Mm -hmm. calling it a peacekeeping operation. And, you know, one of the one of the things that immediately got float floated around was that what was happening in Kazakhstan was a CIA uh, color revolution. You get you hear this a lot on the left, right? That everything that happens is a color revolution. That the CIA is behind all these things. They're funding them. You know, it's like the um, uh, it's an attempt by the United States to use civil society, or it's George Soros with his like funds and whatever, and NGOs trying to basically make the world safe for American imperialism. And that was stupid at the time when people said that. 
And I, I called it out at the time. Well, and it's, it's, a, it's not a very smart way to understand like the, the class contradictions of societies and also even geopolitics because Kazakhstan had been sort of like in this middle area between being towards Putin and then being towards the United States. We, we did black site torture in Kazakhstan <laughs> during the war on terror. You know, they've been allies of the United States as well for the last 20 years. So I'm saying the one thing we shouldn't do is is merely view everything that happens on the ground in Ukraine or Kazakhstan or really anything else only as this sort of like epic geopolitical battle in heaven between like Putin and the United States or in Brandon, I suppose, in this case. Yeah, well, I think it, it, what's going on right now in terms of uh Russia versus Ukraine versus Brandon, it really is this like, uh, you know, these these leaders playing geopolitical chess and yeah. it, it's really out of people's hands. I would say like the only real political aspect to it is that Putin needs to shore up support because um, this is an incredibly, as far as I understand, a really popular gesture oh, yeah. in Russia to receive the Ukraine, like even even some leftists, was very some leftists and even anarchist Russians I know uh, were said that they were you know proud to be Russian when they annexed Crimea. Wow. Was, um, so I I get the impression that um, uh, this is a a major uh, part of Putin's strategy of rebuilding the nationalist ideology around. Uh, his wing of the oligarchy yeah sure. um in but, a way but, that can you know paper over the the real contradictions and uh you know make people forget their history of, of being a, a very revolutionary people right yeah like my point was was that um there doesn't there there are some popular aspects as you describe of like crimea being returned to russia and the crimea had only been separated and like put into ukraine in the 1960s by fucking khrushchev you know what I mean? It was like a populist gesture back then. Like, there are moments when the popular masses intercede in history, and Maidan was one of them. And it, and there was, I, I'm sure, like a color revolution aspect to that. But by saying it is simply just that, it's simply the CIA pulling the strings yeah, behind the scenes. Or like in Hong Kong, for example, right? You can understand that, like, there are like international ruling class interests. There's different blocks of ruling classes across the capitalist world, and they do operate, you know, through civil society. They do do these things. They do, the CIA does fund like opposition groups or whatever. But to to simply say that everything boils down to that geopolitical contradiction or that it's all just a great game, I think it's weak and stupid thinking. Like Maidan was a popular uprising. Yeah, and uh, obviously... Uh the orange revolution in Ukraine was literally a color revolution. Like mm -hmm. this is, I think where we get the name from. Um, and a lot of this stuff is, you know, we, we can say that the CIA, uh, had a hand in it, whether it's like playing favorites in terms of who was going to win or, uh, you know, uh, even coming up with some of the concepts of the action. I, I don't know too much about it, but I don't think that's, that's wrong to say that. I don't think it's wrong to say that the United States did not, uh, push Maidan in a certain mm -hmm. way. But the idea that everybody who was there was paid or trained or wearing boots handed out. Right. It's just, you know, and people say this. I'm not all the time. I'm yeah. not exaggerating. No. People believe that the uh, you know, tens of or hundreds of thousands of people who participated in Maidan 
um, and really, you know, they they fought and died, uh, were on the the payroll. Right. They were on, you know, the, they were collecting a check. It was. It's like calling. I think we're going to talk about it later. Like calling the Freedom Convoy trucker insurrection. Mm-hmm. Calling it simply like an astroturf thing by right. American billionaires. Right. It's like okay, a lot of money came from the United States. More money, I think, statistically came from Canadian millionaires and petty bourgeois and working class people into this sort of thing. Uh, but it's very easy and pat, and ultimately very lib and stupid in my mind to say that it's just that, you know. And and also, um, and I can say this more about like what happens in the United States, but. That money, like, what do you do with it? Like, black, well, the, there's that great article in the New York Magazine, I think, about Black Lives Matter. Uh, like, all those millions of dollars that got poured, poured into one or the other organization calling themselves Black Lives Matter. And they just didn't know what to do with the money yeah. or they were decided to run off with it. And, like, actual Black Lives Matter organizers on the ground said, can I get some of that? You know, like, I'm w- working full time here organizing. Yeah. Can I have some money to pay my rent so I'm not homeless? And they said no. Right. So, like, you could have the same trucker protest in Ottawa without any money changing hands. Sure. There's certainly, um, like, the early proletarian aspect right. of the insurrection. There was, money was not an issue. It was about burning down police stations and looting and, you know, taking the streets. The money is a bit of a red herring, at least in the North American context. I didn't mean to move completely on from Ukraine. I don't know. No, if you no, want we, to talk well, about we should maybe but... move to the truckers and then like work our way back. Because yeah, sure. With the truckers, we kind of know who they are. Like, they are very honest, sincere people who are have really become emotionally attached to the question of vaccine mandates mm-hmm. and vaccine. They are. Um, some of like we can assume a lot of them are truckers uh, in one way or another, owner operators or, uh, you know, maybe actual working class truckers or what have you. Um, but they are a subculture of uh, of the trucking culture in general yeah. that is cross class. Yes. And they are merely a subculture. And what they've achieved is, you know, in terms of if we just if, if let's say that they were leftists. Uh-huh. And this was a leftist cause, which I'm not saying. No, but they they achieved something as great as Occupy, In- incredible, or, yeah. um, uh, the or the squares, the movement of the squares. Or, you know, they yeah. they achieved something on that stature because they moved their vehicles into Ottawa and other places and took the tires and the axles off, and the police, you know, uh, I believe that the police kind of let them do it, and it was kind of something like a police strike or slow down yeah. to yeah. let them do it to some extent. But to another extent, what do you do? What do you do? When the trucks, like in France, yeah, they block them from entering the city. Um, but once you don't, once you fail to do that, what do you do once they're in the streets? Like you're going to have to... Let- and let's let's be entirely honest with ourselves, and let's not let's let's still refrain to call this a uh, a leftist movement. It certainly is not. It's actually kind of anti, but um, in an interesting way. But uh, one of the reasons why they couldn't do anything too is because the fucking all the tow truck truck drivers in Ottawa refused to move those trucks out of the way. They literally could not find any other truckers to break that line. Well, did you hear the story of? Um that's called solidarity, whether we like it or not. Well, I think a lot of them are just trying to stay out of it. Uh, I think a lot of them aren't in solidarity not doing it. But there's that story about how uh, they, the truckers themselves actually called a tow truck driver 
to um, remove a truck that needed to be moved for whatever reason. Like they maybe they they got a deal with the 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 Mounties or something that this truck had to move from one place to another. And so they call the tow truck to move it. And the tow truck driver said, okay, I'm going to do this for free because I support you. And as he was doing it, he got put on camera as a traitor to the movements. And now the guy is like, I'm getting like death threats. I'm getting bomb threats. (laughs) You know, I'm probably going to have to go out of business now. I wish I just didn't help them. So I think that story was indicative of like uh, how much a lot of people just didn't want to mess with it. Yeah. But you know, that's, that's the, uh, a powerful movement. If you can intimidate people yeah. from fucking with it so much. Um, and then, you know, another thing that, uh, is pretty impressive about them is even though like, it is pretty clear that, uh, Nazis and fascists and far right people are, are like very central to this movement. The really, the liberal narrative is pretty thin in terms of like, Oh, one guy had a swastika flag. Right. Um, and two guys set a fire in an apartment building. I might get in trouble for this, but I maybe the I got the sense that the swastika flag was calling Trudeau a Nazi. You know, maybe I, they I, were I a... think it was actually a Nazi. OK. Um, but that's that interesting, too, is like these people are like in their minds anti-fascist, anti-fascist, because yeah. they think that like <laughs> fascism is happening and it's Trudeau, mm-hmm. which is really stupid. But, you know, it's not so far off from, like, what a lot of liberals and leftists think. Yeah. (laughs) There's some some really complicated shit there because it comes down to what, like, we've talked about many, many times on this show, which is, like, the definition of fascism, which is slippery and weird, um, oftentimes, especially in popular culture. But also how you can have, like, incredibly reactionary movements that don't need to drape themselves in the swastika. They can drape, drape themselves in the stars and stripes. They can drape them, drape themselves in the, in the maple leaf. You know what I mean? Like you don't, so there's like, like that sort of like Trudeau is a Nazi thing, but at the same time, there's a lot of blood drenched and there's a lot of dead indigenous people. And there's a lot of broken up strikes that are represented, not by the swastika, but more actually more succinctly by the maple leaf, you know? Mm -hmm. And yeah, there's a lot of implicit, like, um, racism, you know, uh, settler colonial chauvinism. And Anglo-Saxon. It's the very... one guy talks about Anglo-Saxon bloodlines. Right, and that guy and is clearly a Nazi. And he's very central uh, to it. But I just don't think that, like, your average person there knows or cares or believes. Because, like, when they when they check social media and all they're seeing is that one Nazi flag... And they look around and they don't see any Nazi flags. And actually they see a lot of people of color and actually they themselves are not a Nazi or not a racist. They're just like, oh, they're just lying about us. And all these people are believing this lie, just like they believe in the lie of COVID-19. And so um, what, I'm, what I'm getting to with this is that, yeah, these people are deluded. Um, they are full of shit. They are following uh, very right-wing people uh, uh, unknowingly or knowingly. Um, but they, um, they believe, they truly do believe in freedom. Yeah. And they don't know what freedom means because their idea of freedom is a petty bourgeois idea of freedom. It's a one-sided means, bourgeois idea of freedom, yeah. Which, is, which means um, freedom from 
the uh, financial elite, the mm-hmm. political elite, the states, but also freedom from the masses, from the working people, right. from the underclasses, uh, and, from indigenous people. Yeah. Um, they believe in a, a freedom of their class position, even if they are not of that class. They identify yes. with this middle class, petty bourgeois position, even if they are transitional, inside or outside of that class. And um, most importantly, they have found freedom in their struggle with one another yep. in occupying Ottawa, just as we did at Occupy. Yes. Just as we did during the George Floyd uprising. There is the, the only kind of freedom we have is when we get together and we struggle together and we try to make a meaningful existence. And they found that. So yeah. nothing we say about them being stupid and wrong and Nazis is going to change that. Right. You know what that what that petty bourgeois ideal of freedom, which is very powerful because it's it's really like the the foundational notion of of what it means to be an American or to be a Canadian um, for a hundred like two hundred and fifty years. What it really boils down to is property, right? Private property. You know, the 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 owner operator with the two or three hundred thousand dollar rig, his like his prime contradiction in life is um, you know, competition by other capitalists, especially big ones. Like that's the scary one. That's why you hate the globalists. Yeah, that's yeah, why yeah. you hate the that intersection of like uh corporate power and like the captured regulatory state represented of course in the biggest way by the teamsters mm-hmm. right which yep. is like in their mind and in a very real way like let's just admit it in a very real way there is like this sort of coming together of these giant large labor institutions and regulatory bodies on the other side that if you look at the history and I, i've studied the history of trucking before Truckers, especially in the United States, but also in Canada, starting in the 1960s and, and definitely into the 1970s, um, the wildcat culture of trucking had expressed itself in the 1930s through like Trotskyist wildcat strike, like, oh, general yeah. strikes in fucking Minneapolis and in Winnipeg and shit like that. But then as this regulatory structure arose and as actually like the collectivity of trucking labor and regulated routes, you know, and, and like carrier rates and shit like that actually became an impediment, you know, to like, you know, one's material position like the renegade trucker went from being like a Trotskyist revolutionary into becoming like a wildcatter who was working on routes outside of that regulated shit and started fighting to to deregulate trucking, which is what was ultimately done under Carter in 1979, signed by fucking Ted Kennedy, like the two big fucking avatars of liberalism in the United States. They were the ones that pushed it through to deregulate it. And they were the ones. Well, let's put it this way. They were the ones that ratified this sort of um, grassroots collective solidaristic movement among certain segments. Why is there an of, ice cream truck passing us? Oh my God! At nine thirty p.m. Oh God! In February. Why? Maybe it's a teamster. That's creepy know. as hell. <laughs> maybe he sells drugs. Let's go find him. That's a big thing in New York: is getting busted for selling like weed out of your uh, ice cream truck. But uh, no, anyway, so like so truckers as a subculture that you talked about have always been like renegades uh, and and the trucker rebellion against that sort of union and corporate and government monopoly power is what created this entire structure that exists now of these like individual 
petty bourgeois owner operator truckers who have now become at this late date the vanguard for something new. You know what that something new is and the real limitations of what this movement is is that there can't be anything new. You can't reconstitute like a yeoman's republic of truckers. Like the the conception of freedom that they have of private property um and independent proprietorship is one that like capitalism itself is destroying well that's a that's a long way of saying that we we can take um the liberal conception of the the trucker convoy as some combination of like coke brothers astroturfed like um uh i don't know fox news tucker carlson um op right uh, or we can understand the entire uh, trucker convoy and the anti-vax and anti-mandate stuff as simply like um, a Nazi plot or as like a, um, a, a, a like a viral bad ideas that have gotten into people's heads because they like watch the wrong media or whatever. Or we can understand this trucker's convoy as like a contradictory social form, uh, one of conflict like within a highly conflictual moment in world history where it's not a blip. Like the New York Times was trying to call it a blip today. It's not a blip. If you go back, you mentioned Occupy. If you go back to Occupy, you go back to the Arab Spring, you go back to the fucking Syrian Civil War, there are these sort of middle-class popular movements that are arising and taking to the streets, as you said, finding their solidarity amongst one another. But the problem, of course, is that like there can't actually be a solution out of that. Right. No solution comes from simply recognizing one another, Mm -hmm. seeing each other, hearing each other, protesting to power or whatever. They never had the social force in order to actually overthrow like mandates or Trudeau because they wanted to like abolish Trudeau. (laughs) They wanted to like, um, I guess, like put some sort of new constitutional assembly together or whatever. I guess what I'm saying is like this petty bourgeois attempt to get out of this crisis, like this deep social, political and economic crisis of the pandemic. And the last 12, 13 years of economic crisis is will always be insufficient because you can't reconstitute a crisis of private property the, you know, back on the, 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 the conditions of property itself. Well, what they have done that, that Occupy and a lot of the other major struggles, usually more at home on the left, is they've created a situation that everyone's talking about, mm-hmm. uh, including working class people. And so working class people see what's going on with the truckers and they come to certain conclusions about it. They come to a lot of different conclusions. Um, Same thing with Occupy. Same thing with the uprising of Black Lives Matter um, and the anti-globe movement. And these things will only really change anything, will only really have a chance of being revolutionary or making any systematic change when working class people in some significant quantity decide to take action yeah. as working class people. On a class basis. Um, that is what our friends in, uh, our Greek friends call the glass floor. Sure. Yeah. Um, and uh, in usually, uh, the, it's not broken. It was broken in 68 when these uh, petty bourgeois students, uh, well, they weren't all petty bourgeois, but they were, you know, the bohemian students of Paris. Yeah, the rising um, working class kids who are now becoming de classe petty bourgeois yeah uh well a lot of them were the the, the children of of the the factory workers yeah. but um they inspired a uh a wildcat general strike and i think that's always been the dream of these 
post-68 movements. That was certainly what Occupy was literally trying to do. It's what the anti-globe movement did to some extent by involving organized labor Iron in workers, these yeah. counter, uh, uh, these anti-summit de- demonstrations. And um, it's the illusion that we see in, in Ottawa mm. um, that this is some kind of organic working class movement because these people are culturally identifiable as working class. And this is really the danger of it because it's Mm. a pretty small group of people taking this action. It's a vanguard. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I would say it's like J six in a way is like the vanguard of the, the petty bourgeois Trump movement. Mm -hmm. Um, The problem is, and like, uh, you know, liberals and even like certain stripes of anti-fascists can like cheer on their defeat as much as they like. The problem is a lot of the a lot of working class people when they see these things happening, including J6, um and anti-vax demos, all this stuff, they might not want to participate themselves because they have like bigger worries or you know, they like maybe they think that a lot of uh, the stuff going on with pandemic measures are bullshit or hypocritical or profiteering, mm-hmm. which is they're correct yeah. to think that. <laughs> um, but and they don't want to become an activist around these things because it's like the it's way less annoying to just like wear a mask, even though you don't think it's necessary yeah. than to uh, become like an annoying activist. Yeah, that's like my they don't... <laughs> experience in the building trades. On the job, it's very much like a lot of grumbling, but not like right. becoming, because an activist is a certain type of person. Like we're seeing now activism on the, on like, um, I don't know what you call it, like the chud right. We're starting to see between January 6th and, and this, like a replication of the modes of like conflict and activism that you saw on the left. It's becoming like a real fucking street movement. Right. Um, but over and over again, and the reason why I, uh, I I pointed out Occupy Wall Street and I talked about the Arab Spring and the movement of the squares and a lot of what happened in Greece is that like things like this sort of activist impulse, this, this impulse you're talking about of like being seen and like acting collectively and taking to the streets uh, on the basis of, of a, of a, of a sort of vague populism, like a cross-class alliance against elites or whatever. We keep playing the same record over and over and over again. And I think it's, it's, it's more interesting to look at the freedom convoy thing less as like a fascist versus anti-fascist thing, which there's, there's been a lot of people talking about it in those terms and more of like a, like, why do people on the left and the right keep trying to do the same thing over and over mm-hmm. again? And why is there never in any instance a way out of this current crisis, of this current predicament on the particular terms? And is that building towards something different, either something liberatory or something like really scary? Because oftentimes like Gilets Jaunes was, the, you know, another huge example of this was both potentially liberatory and both potentially scary at the same time. Mm-hmm. But all along there's like the really important thing that I think all of us should be looking at, which is like, where does the class fit into this shit? You know, what are, what are the, what are the complications? Like, what are the, um, what are the things that draw people like us, you know, people who work, people who, um, have relatively counter systemic ideas. What is it that draws them to this like petty bourgeois idea of freedom as property, uh, to like looking for a, a sort of organic community, 
uh, whether through like religion or whether through like a bow to like 1950s or 1960s sort of bourgeois conceptions of family. What like why is it that the people that are doing these sort of things, why is it that we're not doing January 6th? Why is it that we're not doing Ottawa? Why is it that like these powerful cross-class movements are taking on the character they, that they do and so powerful and we're completely outside of it? Well, we kind of did do January 6th. It was just in, uh, in, in Minnesota uh, in June. Oh, uh, in the year before. Yeah. Like tens of thousands, many, many, many people swarmed D.C., breached the White House gates, made Trump hide in a bunker. <laughs> you know, I, I've talked about this before on the podcast and people, someone corrected me and I appreciate the correction that they did not burn down the church that the presidents go to, but there was a fire near it that mm. uh, damaged the church in some way. Uh, but, you know, there was like widespread rioting in D.C. that was uncontrollable and died down on its own volition. And it lasted for weeks to some, in some intensity. And it's, uh, it's like, um, I don't think it's, it's, you know, I don't think it's like the media's fault or the Democrats fault that people don't remember that. Mm. Um, but I think it's kind of like our job to keep reminding people that it's not like we didn't do J six. Like we did something way, way better than J six, both in terms of quantity and quality, because there was way more people. It destroyed way. It like a attacked the actual system in way more direct ways it was actually for something good instead of something bullshit, right. like installing Trump as like permanent president. <laughs> so yeah, like, and on top of that, it was way, way, way more popular than J six. Mm. Like J six, uh, like the, the right is, is very split on it in terms of how to react. Yeah. A lot of them are saying it wasn't a real thing. Mm. It was a, it was a psyop. Yeah. It was Antifa or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, of course you, get, have, you have the... people saying that about the uprising too. It always trying... gets reconstituted though. It always gets recapitulated back into like, so like, so I read the New York times article about the, the trucker thing and it was like why it was a blip. And you know, again, I don't, I don't think it's a blip because I think it's all part of this sort of, you know, decade and change long process that we've been seeing from the left and the right. Like why it's a blip is because ultimately on the on the terms of like the centrist liberals at the New York Times, it can't do anything because it doesn't it hasn't taken electoral political form yet. Right. Like that's always the tenor in which these things are judged. What ends up happening, what happened with BLM, as we all know, what happened with the insurrection you're talking about, as we know, is like recapitulated back into the Democratic Party. What's going to happen with the Freedom Trucker Convoy is going to be recapitulated back into the, the conservatives uh, in Canada, which isn't an indictment of like the actions itself. It's only to say that like there are these there keep there keep being these like fucking like punctuations these like moments of, of like of push uh, where like you know you you have like everything's up for grabs you're creating new sort of solidarities whether good or bad uh you're like directly threatening power like i'm sorry we haven't talked about this but blockading the fucking ambassador bridge causing 200 million dollars mm -hmm. worth of fucking direct like making capital bleed every fucking days they did that mm -hmm. and they not only did that but the the people at least the vanguard was based about it they said like we don't give a fuck you've destroyed our lives for two years with vaccines and mandates mm -hmm. we don't care who like 
if capital bleeds forward, we don't care if the other workers. Yeah, bleed if you really believe that are... Trudeau is a Nazi and he's going to kill you with vaccines, then like that's kind of what you should do. Like you're wrong yeah. to think that, but but they're t- but but what I'm saying is that, and this is like giving too much credit, but because I know I don't think this is like a conscious process that's been happening for the last twelve years. I think it's more of like this sort of like theory communist sort of like unconscious like limitations of struggles reaching themselves. But it, it seems more and more that like things are reaching towards production, reaching towards circulation. Gilets Jean found the power of economic blockade. You know, BLM sort of found that as well. Certainly the things that happened in Greece with the movements of the squares. There's like this this like this moment that we keep going up to, which is like affecting actual circulation and production of value mm-hmm. and people seeing the power of that. I don't think it's an accident that while at this very particular and peculiar moment in capitalist history, supply chains have become especially visual and like mm-hmm. visible to everybody that all of a sudden, you know, and that labor that's attached to it, right? Because the truckers are making claims about labor and their productivity right, right. to society and their right to do so, mm-hmm. right? I don't think it's a surprise that in the midst of a supply chain crisis, you have people reaching for that lever, you know, and saying like, no, we will, supply chains are fucked, we will fuck them more. You know, yeah, that's yeah. a power that we have collectively. These are people that like literally like make generalized commodity production work. You mm-hmm. know, the truckers like say what you want about them, but they, you know, are the people out. Most of 90 percent of them, as we know, because you'll hear it all the time, are vaxxed. Something like 40 percent of truckers in Canada are Sikh. Apparently, mm-hmm. I just found out on this entire wow. thing. It's like it's not just some like weird white chuddy like Angus, Anglo-Saxon bloodline guy out mm-hmm. of um, Alberta or whatever. But like in a certain sense, these people are making a claim for like the value of their labor within within society and saying we can shut shit down. And whether or not you support the their struggle, and we certainly don't because we don't think it's a progressive thing. It's very interesting to start seeing people pull those fucking levers. Yeah, and um, I'll I'll get even spicier than that, please, and say that the cops are doing the same thing when they, to whatever extent, they let them shut down Ottawa, mm. which I I'm I'm starting to think that that probably is a big part of what happens. Mm. Um, and but just in general, like the way that they reacted to the uprising around the United States and said. Oh, you guys, you don't like us? Well, uh, we'll just stop doing our jobs. And, you know, for someone like me, that's great. Like, awesome. Like, I'll go fucking uh, set off fireworks and watch the square park. <laughs> Drink um, in the streets. Yeah, th- that's fun for me. But um, a lot of people really, d- like, want things to be chill. Yeah. So, like, the fact it, it, that in Ottawa, um, uh, and this is something that uh, some kind of, like, the, the the sort of leftists who like support the truckers bring up is that yeah they're pissing off everybody and the people who live around that neighborhood hate them but this is like a rich neighborhood so sure. fuck those people right yeah um the pmc but, city versus the proletarian right. country and but <laughs> and this is like but we, you can this, this idea that like they're annoying people and like making uh, people's lives harder in the neighborhood where they're taking action. This is also true of uh, these kind of disruptive protests that we like, like Black Lives Matter, yeah. uh, Occupy, you know, blocking uh, highways has become like a huge trap, uh, mm. a huge um, uh, tactic that people just like instinctively 
do to like show like how you know how pissed off they are how like we need to shut things down uh until things change and um like the way that we conceive this action is that we're we're blocking the flows of capital mm. we're not letting things proceed normally but a lot of people experience this as I'm trying to get home from work. Yeah. Like, I had a hard day at work. Yeah. I'm trying to get home. You, you're blocking a million cars. Like, people are going to be like, there's a million reasons why people are going to be pissed. And on one hand, this kind of oppositional direct action inspires a lot of people. That people see it, and they really want to be a part of it. And I'm talking about both the truckers and us now. Mm-hmm. On, on the other hand, um, it pisses off a lot of people. And it makes people really reactionary mm. because you're making, you're like fucking up their day. Like, and you don't even need to block their car to make them feel that way. You, they could just see you from the sidewalk and be like, you guys care about something? Fuck you. Right, right, right. Like, why don't you care about what I care about? Right, you know, right, right. But you, don't, you don't need to actually like materially hurt someone. Like, I think the limits can really be understood working our way back to Ukraine mm. if we if we look at what happened at Maidan, where something that started like Occupy turned into, you know, strikes mm-hmm. and, you know, people like hundreds of people forming like, uh, you know, paramilitary battalions like in the square, including making the Molotovs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> including Nazis, um, but not Nazis, too. Yeah, Sure. Like putting that putting those political differences aside, working with Nazis for a minute. Um, and I'll put in the show notes this this. Uh, great essay from crime think like uh about everything that happened from maidan until now Mm. in the ukraine and about how anarchists you know tried to intervene in maidan and you know tried to make and to some extent uh just like largely failed but tried to um you know steer that in in a truly revolutionary direction um but even if you're successful, you know, if, if you're, if this is like a movement about patriotic renewal, mm. it was a movement about, uh, shifting one group of oligarchs for another. Um, or similarly, if your movement is like, let's move the democratic party towards like abolitionist positions, you're not going to change anything. In fact, you're going to strengthen the power of the state of your enemies mm. Um, in one way or another. So the question for us is um, that these struggles are really important because they really politicize people. Like I'm saying, they some people are really inspired by it. Some people are like, well, these are the people who are really taking action, who are really, these are the people who really hate Trudeau, who really hate Trump, who really hate Biden, who are actually willing to do something about it, who are actually willing to shut shit down. And a lot of people are like, these people are really annoying. Fuck them. I hate them. I want to run them over but or shoot them or whatever. They would be about us, too, if we right. shut down a major city. The yeah. same person <laughs> yeah. would say it about both sides. Right. Um, but what we got to figure out is how do you express, not just in like our blog posts and our banners, but also in the tactics, how do we express we are trying to fight for something really, really different than these kind of culture war questions. I want to talk about culture war. You you could finish, but I... Yeah. Unfortunately, what I've sort of concluded by looking at this, and this is really a conclusion that we should have had from Maidan, 
and uh, maybe more importantly, we should have had from Syria and the Arab Spring, is that we don't really know um, what to do. Like our model of occupying squares and trying to push it as to be as militant as possible. In Syria, it ended in like one of the worst wars in the history of the world. Jesus, yeah. In Maidan, it ended in like the victory of this like Western, neoliberal Nazi yeah. fusion. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, and civil war and now probably uh, international war. Um, and so these like gestures that we have can really like, I think the dream of like the revolutionary and the anarchist and the anti-authoritarian is that we make these small gestures. We say what we want to say, we like show people what's possible if we like defy authority. And then um, it's out of our hands. Like action takes on a life of itself and that's really dangerous and things can go really, really wrong. And so I think if we don't really account for Syria and Ukraine and, you know, occupy and, you know, everything that's happened, if we don't really think about, um, uh, you know, how what we're doing isn't working, um, and if we're not honest with ourselves about how it hasn't worked, then we can't really continue calling ourselves revolutionary. Because if our concept of revolution is just like, we're going to like push towards chaotic action in hopes that revolution will just naturally follow from that, we're wrong. Mm. What I'm trying to say with all this is I still believe in revolution, but I think our all of our de- ideas aren't working. Mm-hmm. You know, and like the Leninist idea is like especially not working. <laughs> oh man, that's that's a lot. I, I mean, I'm gonna try to be careful. Granted, I'm ha- I'm hungover and now I'm kind of drunk and I'm certainly very tired, but I want to be try to try to be careful about this because this is something that I've been trying to work out with the freedom trucker convoy thing. And I'm actually, I've been writing about it too. I think I might actually put out a, a piece about this. Holy shit. Oh, wow. That'd be epic. <laughs> Finally, I might start a sub stack or something. It'll be free though. I won't charge. Comrade Sean. Yeah. Um, me and Michael Tracy and Glenn Greenwald. We're going to start a, uh, anyways, um, like let's not be stupid about shit. Like let's not be fucking lib about shit. Let's have, uh, like a deeper sort of class analysis than I think, um, you know, say like the left wing of the Democratic Party has about these things. Let's let's try to be somewhat, I think, dispassionate about all this and try to understand these real divisions. Like when you, you two things struck me that you said. The first was you said two different sets of oligarchs, and you were talking about Ukraine, but that could also be Canada as well. And then you talked about culture war. I think that. And this is something I'm trying to work out, but I think it's a really important question is we need to be thinking about and looking at the way that class composition and also the sort of chaos of capitalist social relations and and changing relationships to uh, production have made it so that a lot of the sort of um, things that we took for granted about what the working class is and even how capitalism works and how politics arises out of that, it's a bit more complicated. Like the question, so if you're a dum-dum, you're talking about the mandate stuff and the, and the freedom stuff and the anti-vax stuff from a purely sort of culture war point of view, and you're not asking how these culture wars arise to begin with. How is it that, and granted, we've all been through a trauma for the last couple of years. How is it that um, vaccines and mandates have become such a trigger point where you've got hardened sides? You've got like 
20, 30% of the population, call them the Democrats, who are like super pro anything in terms that like the, the, the administration says that Fauci says shut everything down. You know, we have to like, you know, be, be super strict with everything. And anyone that doesn't do that is to blame, right? The unvaccinated are the ones to blame for this. Then you have 20, 30% of the population who see this as an absolute abrogation of everything that they believe in, that the way that society should run, the way that their lives should be. Um, and they, and they see this as like a Hitlerian authoritarian thing that they're willing to like probably potentially die for. They're certainly willing to shut down the fucking most major bridge, you know, in terms of like commodities passing from Canada to the United States. How do these things come about? And I think that we need to understand this in terms of like two different spheres, two different spheres of production two different like cross-class alliances that have arisen between, and this is very schematic and people land in between this, but on the one hand, like a globally oriented urban technocratic uh, service and financial oriented sort of fraction of the mode of production on the one hand, a sort of national oriented extraction and productive um sort of uh, rural capitalist accumulation process happening on the other side and the ways in which the politics uh, and the culture of this country kind of match on to what is essentially like a split, not merely in politics and not merely in culture, but actually in a way that working class people and middle class people and ruling class people understand their particular position and the people that they depend on and the sorts of rights and freedoms that they understand to be true in the world, how those actually arise out of the particular type of accumulation processes that are happening in different parts of the country and different parts of the world. So like roughly grafting like a, like Republicans, you know, and Democrats, they're like rough sort of understandings of these two different ways that like, say, rural people rely on extractive industries and like, you know, the local concrete plant owner, and they see their own particular cultural and political vision of how the world should be in this sort of small government conservative, um, like uh, community oriented, sort of like rural ideal of politics. And on the other hand, you have like a whole other complex of people in the cities. Again, I'm, I'm trying to work this out. But I think that like, so much of what passes for culture war is actually the way that different fractions of the working class and the middle class and the capitalist class reproduce themselves and the ideologies that arise out of these like two different vast spheres, seemingly like different, like completely different spheres, like the urban versus the rural. It seems like there's a divide, you know, on cultural and political and economic terms that can never be surpassed. They're both moments in the process of accumulation, but they appear to people as though they're like completely like antagonistic to each other. Oh yeah, absolutely. it's almost like a postonian sort of argument that I'm making right now. But I think that's really important because I think it goes to show why it is that the like large segments of the working class, not just white, but as we've seen more and more, like Spanish and and black workers, are drawn to the Trump movement mm-hmm. because there's something about that particular political position that matches with their conception of like how it is that they like produce and reproduce their lives. Yeah, basically what what you're talking about is I've been thinking along these lines for the last few years. I I think like after because, you know, when Trump comes in, there's this move towards anti-fascism and anti-fascism achieved 
a certain amount, but it reached its limit both tactically and politically. Uh, and I think now we're still seeing this play out with the truckers where not only are our anti-fascists trying to figure out how they can, uh, you know, fight the fascists within the truckers without supporting the police and without supporting Trudeau, but also people are beginning to support the truckers because they think the left and anti-fascism has taken the side of the state. Right. You know, that's sometimes people's like sole reason for supporting the truckers now. Yeah, yeah. Is that like they perceive the left as against them. So it's a, it's a really dangerous position. But um, I think once um, anti-fascism kind of achieved what it needed to achieve, which was like smashing the alt-right, um, there is this kind of question of, well, now that the alt-right, now, now that the alt-right is not like part of the Trump White House, you know, mm -hmm. or like a marginal part of the Trump White House, now that the Trump movement are no longer being seduced by like outright Nazis, they're kind of just thinking their own crazy thoughts. Um, like, how do we account for this mass right-wing populist movement? Yeah. And the, the answer more, to more, more and more to me is that class position is driving this ideology. Mm -hmm. um, even the people who are part of these movements who are not petty bourgeois or middle class um, are identifying with ideas that really only make sense coming from that petty bourgeois position. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's like kind of a hard and even like wing nutty thing to try to describe, but it's the only thing that really makes sense to me in, in explaining things like the QAnon phenomenon yeah. and the anti-vax phenomenon. And, um, and I think that if we don't challenge ourselves to see the class forces behind um, not only the right, but like the left and how, how these manifestations are, uh, how, how, how those ideas manifest themselves in like political action and in, in mass culture, um, then we're just kind of uh, then we're just in the culture war. Like yeah. the culture war is Which just we how have we to leave. Yeah, this, <laughs> that's just how we lose. Yeah, um, but the culture war is also real for the reasons that we're talking about because the culture war does like represent right. a real material politics, the material politics of like the left versus the right. Mm -hmm. And as you were saying, and I'm glad that you came to this because I've been thinking this a lot. Like both what we understand as the left, i.e., the Democrats, or the right you know, the Republicans, it's both middle-class politics. Like in this yep. country, we have a Absolutely. dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. Yep. We have democracy for the petty bourgeoisie. And then we have like, like the subjugation of the working class in this country. And the reason why looking at these tough and, and I think complicated questions of, um, uh, of class and how that relates to politics and the culture war, it's because like, ultimately we have to try to understand what is recuperable out of this. If there are like sizable portions of the working class within this uh, who are making anti-authoritarian, anti-state gestures. We need to understand where that sort of politics comes from, but also importantly know that two things. The first is that the ruling class, the capitalist class and their lackeys in politics have no solution. 
abrogated any attempt at it. They're trying to hold on to the 1990s, and they will hold on to the 1990s for the next 20 or 30 years as the fucking world crumbles around their head. It'll still be the end of history for them, like as the fucking thermonuclear, as like we, we drown in the fucking waters of a rising sea. But also, too, that there's no solution within the, the left-right culture war, politics, or whatever. The only solution has to come from a sort of synthesis where we look at these balance of class forces, uh, where we try to understand where they come from and ultimately come up with a position outside of the Democrats and the Republicans, mm -hmm. outside of this sort of petty bourgeois sort of uh, democratic understanding of, of the world. And that, of course, that position is the, the class position. Like, how is, how is it that we that unite these sort of counter systemic class movements in such a way that they're actually representative of the only way that you can actually get out of the crisis that we're in right now, this like epochal crisis of the capitalist system mm -hmm. where like value, like we're, we're basically in a position now where like capital, like the reason the politicians can't do anything is because nothing can be done under the auspices of property. Nothing can be done under this system right now because profit rates are so low. The only way out of that is a class position. The only way is actually to abolish, you know, and how that comes about it's like it's not going to abolish come. what value. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Why? What do you want to? Well, abolish? <laughs> I think um, I think that the challenge in this is that, you know, we we online people, we political people, um, we nerds, we nerds. look, we we read history, we read Twitter, we see. Uh, we see culture war. We try, we see, you know, we read labor notes. We try to like put everything together and interpret it. Uh, we, you know, we read about COVID. We, we try to make our best interpretation of what's going on with COVID. What, what kind of, like if we wear a mask, if we don't, you know, everyone's trying to figure it out. No one's like just listening to Fauci. That's bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, uh, there, there's like a handful of people who just do what the CDC says, and a handful of people who are just anti-vax. The vast majority of people are figuring it out for themselves. Mm -hmm. And the working class is learning the lessons that they need to learn um, from, from the pandemic, from COVID. They're seeing what's happening. They're living it day to day. And they're not fucking going to Ottawa and blocking the streets in mass. This is like a hand. This is a subcultural thing, as was Occupy. Yeah, as was Anti Globe. Different you sides know? of the middle class. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, and like working class people participate in uh, all these things. Working class people participate in all these things, and they make meaningful contributions. And these things reach the working class in certain ways. Um, but ultimately, in until there's something that we can really identify as a class movement. And I think the uprising was something that comes really close in terms of like being like clearly identifiable because like the protagonists of it were like clearly not middle class kids, were clearly not yeah. like activists. And it had a uh, proletarian core right. that was much more solid yes. than anything you saw at the truck. Um, <laughs> but there's a lot more stuff that's going on that we can't see or can't easily understand, like the Great Resignation. Yep. That's, you know, a debatable term, obviously, is questionable, but there's something going on there 
that's very real and speaks to the delegitimization of work. Mm-hmm. It's, it's happening. And the delegitimization of the state, which has been ongoing for two years, at least for, for longer than that. And what we see and what we understand about it is really just like the tip of the tip of the iceberg. And so we shouldn't just like pretend that we're not, you know, internet nerds or whatever, but we got to keep our eye out for what the class actually does and what kind of action it's actually taking. That's what we have to orient towards. Yeah. Um, and easier said than done. It might just mean we have to kind of be humble and wait. Anyone rushing full force into saying we have to crush the truckers or actually the truckers are workers because <laughs> the trucks that they own put them into some debt. Yeah. Uh, you're just full of shit. Yeah. No, like we need to understand things and all their contradictions and all their contradictory uh, elements. And, um, you know, one thing that uh, and I'll finish with this because it sounds like we're winding down. But one thing that people should try to understand, too, is that there's these different class elements. And it's not the lumpen in the 1960s and 70s. The lumpen was seen as like the revolutionary subject. The lumpen ultimately was like insufficient back then. And I think that um, ultimately, if we're going to have a class movement that's powerful, it's going to have to confront, it's going to have to like materially confront these sort of petty bourgeois movements. And it's going to have to pull ultimately um, like higher, higher income and higher status workers towards it. And indeed, elements of the petty bourgeoisie towards it as well. Like we've, we've really, I feel like rhetorically, because of the culture war and because of because so much of our politics is wrapped up in like um, I don't know identification with with particular sort of um, uh, cultural or, or political ideas um, we've like written off a lot of people that I think ultimately like um, we will fail without reaching and ultimately the the petty bourgeoisie as a transitional sort of unstable class. Uh, can be brought towards us. But nobody's, not nobody, very few people are doing that work right now. Well, if we want to abolish value, we got to abolish class. Yeah. And so, you know, there's a a home for everyone in the (laughs) proletarian movement to abolish value. The way you abolish value. So they blockaded (laughs) the ambassador bridge. You blockade every single border between Canada and the United States and then Mexico and the United States. And you blockade the entire coast. You have like roving pirate workers mm-hmm. out there keeping commodities from coming in. And once you stop the commodities from moving, there can't be value anymore. See, I fixed mm-hmm. the whole thing. That's it. Well, I think uh, value is actually part of the vaccine, <laughs> you know, because just as we're about to res- resign and just as we're about to abolish the working class, they pump it back into us. Right. Yeah. They put a little value in you. Uh, speaking of everybody, um, we've got a Patreon at patreon.com slash the Antifada. Uh, this Friday, we've got a really great bonus episode that Jamie did with the Eve Six guy. Yeah, everyone He loves talks the about the Heart and the Blender song. He talks about uh, being the Eve Six guy. He talks about if Eve Six is now a Christian rock band. <laughs> so please check that out. Also... If you put your address in for a postcard, uh, just um, send that to me again because we had a little bit of a problem with uh, getting those addresses. I won't go into it here. But if you want a postcard, please message us on Patreon and I'll do my best to send you one. I'm sorry about that. There should be enough for everybody who asks. 
Um, so that's patreon.com slash the Antifada. We really appreciate your support. And stay tuned. Uh, new Diving into the Wreckage. Diving into the Wreckage oh, yeah. 3. With see Derek Varn and I on the very spicy topic of what is China will be coming out next week. Yeah. So I hope you all enjoy that. Come